Well, again, open your Bibles up to Mark, Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. The lady I have on the screen up there, her name is Kim. She lives in South Korea. She's married. She has two teenagers. She attends church on a weekly basis, and she likes to go on hikes. She's pretty much living a normal life as a South Korean lady. Yet, she wakes up many nights, and she has nightmares and wonders, can God forgive me? Has God forgiven me? She thinks about the the wicked things that she has done in her life. And she knows she deserves nothing that she has. You see, Kim, back in 19, let's see if I can scroll this here. Guys, I think you have to do it back in the back there. It's not working for me. There we go. 1988, Kim lived in North Korea, and she was a North Korean spy. And she uh, decided with, uh, she was, I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. She uh, had been trained for eight years to be a spy when she was a teenager. She was brainwashed, and it was basically the robot for Kim Il-sung, the dictator of North Korea. She had studied Japanese and got false uh, passports and was traveling the world. She got on Korean Airlines Flight 858 in the summer of 1988 during the Olympics, and she planted a bomb on the plane. She exited the plane and got another aircraft and went off somewhere else. And 115 people lost their lives. There were two spies. There was an older gentleman and her. And when they were caught, they had cigarettes in their mouth. And they bit on the end of the cigarette. And they had a little pill in there that was supposed to kill them. And he died, but she survived. She found herself in a hospital. And she woke up with agents, South Korean agents, pointing guns at her. She had her mouth duct taped shut so she wouldn't bite off her tongue. And she knew that if she was caught, she would be interrogated. And so she sang in her mind over and over the North Korean revolutionary song. So she wouldn't forget her North Korean dictator that she was following in her country. And for days she was interrogated. And eventually one of the interrogators took her out in a car and drove her around Seoul, South Korea. And as she looked at the people and they were smiling, they were happy, they were prosperous. She started realizing that something was wrong. What she had been told about South Korea was incorrect. And actually she realized that her whole mission and her life was a sham. And she realized that she was wrong. She was sentenced to death in 1989. And in 1990, uh, the president of South Korea pardoned her. She was actually able to walk out of the South Korean prison as a terrorist, but pardoned and go on with her life as a South Korean citizen. Two months into her incarceration, though, before she was pardoned, two months into her incarceration, someone sent her a Bible, sent her some literature about Christ. She began to read 
about what Jesus Christ had done for her, how he lived a perfect life, died in her place, and she ran, read the scriptures, and something began to change in her heart and her mind. She grew up an atheist. She didn't believe in God, except for, of course, Kim Il-sung. He was their God. But she started realizing that there was a God who loved her and would forgive her of her sins. And there in that cell, before she was released, she trusted in Jesus Christ as her Savior. Then she was pardoned by the president. And she went out and was baptized in March 29th, 1991 in a Baptist church. She got married, had children. She was pardoned by the government. And she was pardoned by Jesus Christ. Yet, you know, she still to this day struggles. How can she be forgiven? Like, how can God forgive her for what she did? 115 people lost their lives. Can a person truly be forgiven by God? A person like Kim. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 2 today and see that Jesus has authority over everything. He, in Mark chapter 1, we saw that Jesus had authority over, um, over all diseases and subdued demons and sicknesses and other diseases. The people were amazed. They came from everywhere in Galilee. There you go. You guys can go to the next one. I don't know. if Could you get this to work? I don't know if you can or not, but that would be great. Um, they came from everywhere in Galilee to see the miracles of Jesus. But remember, Jesus' main ministry was not the miracles. They were actually his preaching. He did the miracles because he wanted to show compassion. He did the miracles because he is a creator God who restores. But primarily, he did the miracles to show that he has authority over everything, over sickness and spiritual powers and even death. And he proved that he has authority by these amazing miracles he did. And he proved he had authority over sin and its effect. But soon we find that Jesus was not even able to enter to the cities to be able to preach the gospel. So many people wanted to see him that he was pushed out into the wilderness there. And sometimes on the side of a mountain, the Sea of Galilee, and people were still coming around him. And he was being flocked to by people who wanted to see wonders. People who wanted to him to be their king, to maybe overthrow the the government. And he was trying to tell people that he he would heal. He would tell them, listen, please do not go out and tell everyone this. He was trying to subdue the crowds. In fact, look down in Mark chapter 1, verse 45. He tells the leper, he says in verse 45, he, the leper, went out and began to talk freely about it, even though Jesus told him to not spread the news. And he began to spread the news so that, that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but it was in, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every corner. So despite being driven out of towns, they, they kept pursuing him. What I want you to see here is that the people were coming to him because they wanted their temporal lives improved. They weren't coming to him truly to, to find repentance and faith in Jesus. I mean, the interesting thing is that this has not changed in our day, is it? People uh, preach the gospel of Jesus, a false gospel. And the gospel basically goes like this. Jesus can help you have more money. He can help you have wealth. He can help you have health. He can, he can make your life better if you just come to him. 
And unfortunately, in a lot of countries, especially poor countries, this false gospel about Jesus is preached. But Jesus did not preach this gospel. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. He preached about eternity. He preached about forgiveness, about repentance. So in Mark chapter 2, in in verse number 1, we see Jesus coming back into the city that he had his home base, his Capernaum there. Probably coming to Peter's house. It doesn't particularly say that, but he went to some home there. Remember, Peter's house was a sort of complex with multiple rooms surrounded by a, a common area. So Mark chapter 2, in verse 1, we see Jesus ministering in Capernaum. Would you stand with me as I read this? Mark chapter 2. We're going to go verses 1 through 17. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thus questioning within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as he reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your power and your spirit will be upon us. May the truth become clear in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to try one last time. Is it going to work yet for me? Maybe you guys can restart it for me, okay? The first story in Mark 1, or Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12, Jesus displays 
his power as the divine physician to physically heal and to spiritually restore. And then the second and third story, Jesus declares himself to be the divine physician who came to solve the greatest problem that we have, and that is the problem of sin. And I've titled my sermon today, The Divine Physician Meets the Disabled Patients. The Divine Physician Meets the Disabled Patients. And I'm sorry, I'm a little confused here this morning because I see one thing up there and one thing back here. So you guys just figure it out. Just keep, you can keep up with me and follow along, okay? Okay, that's okay. Okay, sorry, I'm a little rattled here. <laughs> Trying to figure out what you guys are seeing up there. In verse 17, look down at verse 17, Jesus declares himself to be the divine physician. Verse 17, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I am divine physician who heals the sin sick soul. So Jesus is the divine physician. And notice all of the disabled patients in this passage. Now, you might have looked at this passage and thought, I only see one, a paralytic man, right? A man who's paralyzed. But Jesus sees the hearts of all these individuals, and he knows the depravity of their heart that causes each person to be spiritually disabled. So what we see in this passage is the divine physician touches the hearts of spiritually disabled people. So first of all, the consultation with the divine physician, the consultation with the divine physician. And when's the last time you've been to the doctor? I talked to some people this morning and they're like, I went to the doctor this week. One time when, um, when Isaac was born, uh, we were going to the hospital and on the way to the hospital, I started feeling sick, but you know, I didn't want to tell that to my wife because you know, she's the one that's going to be in pain, not me. So I thought, well, I'm just going to be nice to her, not tell her, but through the day and in the afternoon, she had the baby. I just felt worse and worse. I knew something was seriously wrong with me. But I tried to put the smile on my face, you know, and tried to do the whole thing as a father. And that night, the baby was born. And I, I said, I got to go back to my office and I got to go sleep somewhere. We had a lady that was a single lady that was keeping our children at our other two girls at home. So I went back to my office and, and laid on the ground and then on a couch there and one of the pastor's offices and slept the whole night, got up the next morning thought maybe I'd feel better. And I felt even worse. So I went to the hospital, picked Dana up and tried to smile still, bring her home. And I'm on the way home going, I think I'm going to die. And I realized I needed to go to the doctor. And so I, uh, I dropped them off and said, Dana, I got to go to the ER. I actually had a friend come pick me up and take me to the ER. And I'm in the ER and I'm realizing something is wrong. Well, I found out after I went to the doctor he told me at the ER there, he said that I had a severe case of strep throat. Actually, even had to have my tonsils taken out. But, you know, I knew something was wrong, right? I needed a consultation. <laughs> like I needed an examination. And when I did, the doctor diagnosed me with what my problem was. And Jesus here is in a spiritual ER. And he diagnoses the spiritual problem of these individuals. Look at verse number two. Many were gathered together. So there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And here, again, is why Jesus was there, right? He went everywhere preaching the scriptures, preaching the truth to them. And imagine this scene. Look at verse 3. Imagine this scene that they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And there's so many people stuffed in this room. 
I mean, think about the body heat that would have been in there. Think about people sticking their heads through windows, squished in the corners of the wall. People really wanted to hear Jesus. And there was a man who was paralyzed. Could have been he was a quadriplegic or maybe a paraplegic. We don't really know. Probably think that probably he was completely paralyzed because he was laying on a bed, right? And the four men had to carry his dead weight. And they brought this man to the top of this house. And then back in that day, they would have had flat roofs. And you would have had some stone steps. So you would have walked to get to the very top there. But here's a man who cannot do anything for himself. I mean, clearly he's completely disabled. He couldn't have dressed himself, couldn't have fed himself. He was completely dependent upon other people. And there were four men that believed that if they were able to get him to Jesus, Jesus could do something about it. Now, even in our day, if you're paralyzed, it's incurable. You can't, there's no cure for, for someone who's paralyzed, right? So this is pretty insane to think about. Someone could be healed of this. But these men were determined. They were determined. I mean, think about that. How determined were these men to have their friend meet Jesus, right? I mean, how determined are we to bring our friends to Christ? These men were so determined, verse 4, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the, the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, or literally when they dug an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And so you think about these men carrying this like crude little gurney up these steps. They go to the top. They lay this man down. And you can imagine this man completely paralyzed. You know, he's looking over thinking, is this going to work? And these men begin to start digging out the top of this roof. So they would, they would have removed the tiles. They would have probably dug down and, and dug out the, the hay and the rubble and the clay and all that kind of stuff. And you can imagine that if you're Jesus and this group of people who are stuffed in this room down there, like you start hearing these steps, you start seeing some rubble start falling down on your head, like what is happening? Eventually someone's hand comes through, you know, and maybe even he puts his face down there and says, hey, Jesus, I got someone that's going to come see you. We're, we got to dig a bigger hole. <laughs> you know? And how big did the hole have to be in order for this man to be lowered down there in, to see Jesus? And then eventually they were able to get the hole big enough and they lowered this man down. This man lay there now before Jesus, unable to do anything, right? I mean, he was paralyzed. And here's Jesus, the one with all authority, the divine physician standing above him. Was this man hoping that he could do something to be healed by Jesus? No, he was paralyzed. But he believed that Jesus had the power to heal him. And so standing above him, Jesus then looks at him and he diagnoses this man's problem. What does he say the problem was? Look down in verse number five. When they saw when Jesus saw their faith, the four, faith of the four men, he said to the paralytic, so individually to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. There we go. Thank you. Son, your sins are forgiven. What was this man's greatest need? Was this man's greatest need to have his body restored? Was this man's greatest need to be able to provide for his family? Was this man's greatest need 
to have relief from suffering, this man's greatest need was to be forgiven of his sins. This man's greatest problem was that he had a sinful heart. Yes, he was suffering now, but his greatest problem was that he would suffer separated from God forever. And so Jesus here identifies this man's greatest problem. It was that he had a sin problem. And his greatest need was that he needed to be reconciled to God. He needed to be forgiven of his sins. I think it's good to pause and think about this right now. And that is that there's many times in our life where we get distracted and we think the things, the temporal things of our life are the most important What Jesus was identifying here is that we need to look beyond and see that 2 Corinthians 4.18 says we don't don't look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. But the things which are seen are, are temporal, but the things which are not seen are what? They're eternal. And sometimes when we have, we have sicknesses or difficulties, and there's many people in the church here that have some very serious difficulties, right? Sometimes when we get, we get sick and we have difficulties, we, we, we think, man, I, I want this to go away, right? And that's not a bad feeling. Like, it's not, that's okay to feel that way. But we need to look beyond our, our pain and look to eternity and see what, what is God doing in our life. Sometimes we can be without a job or, or have a, a, a terrible difficulty in our, our life like that. Or, or maybe you can be very successful in your life, but it's stressing you out, right? Because you're go, 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 go. And we can be so focused on those temporal needs that we forget the priority of our life is our relationship with God. And your temporal needs are important, right? But the greatest problem this paralytic man faced What's identified by Jesus as his sin. That's why in verse 5 he says what? Your sins. Which if you're a reader of this. Or if you're even there. You're kind of shocked. Like that's not the reason he came. Is it? Actually. Jesus realizes what he needs most. Sin literally means to miss the mark. And, And the mark and the aim of our life. Is to bring glory to God. By loving him. And obeying him. So get that. The aim of our life is to bring glory to God by loving God and obeying him. How could a person who can't even move, literally move a muscle, miss a mark? You ever thought about that? Like here Jesus is saying, you're a sinner. The guy's laying there. Like What has he done? Well, we realize that sin or the Bible teaches that sin is not just the things that we do. Right? Not just going and stealing something. That sin is passed to us from our parents. But also sin originates in our heart. See, this man was completely dependent upon everyone else around him. But still in his heart, he was living an independent life from God. Do you get that? Even a paralytic who was completely dependent on others had a heart that lived independent from God and needed forgiveness. So the paralytic man's greatest need was forgiveness from his sins looking down in verse number six and some of the scribes were sitting there now think about that here's a man lowered down into the room and they're just sitting there i mean how pride filled do you have to be to sit in it i mean everyone's squished in this room this man's lowered down didn't say they went and helped him right they just sat there this is after this man was lowered down And I'm sure they were sitting in the most important 
positions and look what they say in their heart in verse number six. It says the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? Speaking of Jesus, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God on? Well, they're right. Only God can forgive sins. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to him, why do you question these things in your hearts? See, Jesus can see their hearts. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that only God can see the heart. First Samuel sixteen seven, the Lord said to Samuel, for the Lord doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but where does God look? He sees the heart. So these men realize that only God could see the heart. And so it's interesting. The ironic thing here is that God, Jesus, knows everything, right? He can see in their hearts and they're questioning if he's really God (laughs) or questioning if he's claiming to be God. And so Jesus is claiming to be God by the fact that he's claiming he can forgive sins. And so here sat outwardly religious, self-righteous Men. In fact, in verse 17, when Jesus says, I haven't come to call the righteous, that's who he's talking about, these scribes. In other words, Jesus, or these men were deceived and thought they were good enough to earn forgiveness from God. They didn't need a divine physician. And so Jesus knows their hearts, and he knows that they're just as wicked as anyone else. It's interesting about these men here is they were basically practical religious atheists. Now think about that. They were practical religious atheists. They, they were religious all right, right? I mean, these guys were kind of like the, pra- the traveling preachers. They would go to synagogues and they would preach. These guys prayed. These guys read scripture. They fasted. They spoke of God. But they didn't actually live a life of repentance and faith. I mean, when they met God himself, Jesus, they didn't fall before him in repentance. They weren't trusting that that God was their redeemer and their strength. They weren't broken by their sin. They were living a religious life apart from God. Think about that. I mean, don't you think that's where our society in America is? I mean, as I was thinking about these men here, I was thinking that's probably where really Christianity in America is. That many Christians live religiously atheistic life. Listen to these statistics. Between 40 to 50% of baby boomers and the greatest generation. So we, you know the greatest generation, you know what that is? John's over here. Hey, John, how you doing? John is going to be 94 tomorrow. Is that right? 94. That's a great generation right there. Okay. (laughs) But of that group, so make sure you wish him happy birthday. That group right there, they are currently right now attending church. Weekly, about 40 to 50% of them. In the millennial age, they are attending church. About 27% of millennials attend church. The generation below them, it's even less than that. So, so basically, our country is sliding into an atheistic culture, right? But actually, I actually believe we probably have already been there. I believe that probably the, the younger generation is practicing and just pra- practically living out what many of their parents practiced, which was religious atheism. And what do I mean by that? I mean that, that parents uh, had their religious rules their kids were to live by. They brought them to church. But the kids knew that in their home, God was just a ceremonial sham. Right? They were just going, their parents were just going through the actions. And I think about many 
parents today, right? There's many parents today that, that live as religious atheists. The reality is, is that many of us can do this, right? That we can think going to church and having our religious rules for our kids is Christianity, and that's not Christianity. Do our kids see parents who are broken before God by their sin, or do they just see broken homes? Do our kids see parents who are daily praying and depending on God, or do they just see some distant religious leader doing that on a weekly basis? Do our kids see parents humbly trusting God in conflict, or do they see them just complain about their suffering? Do our kids see parents who are making gospel decisions? Or or are they just seeing their parents wanting the bigger house and the more expensive car and the fun vacation and, and the political victories, right? In other words, we can live our lives as religious atheists. Yes, we have the religion, but it's apart from the reality of what God expects from us. We must see ourselves as God sees us. And how is that? We are Sin-sick patience, corrupted by our wicked hearts. And notice in verse 13, there's more patience that Jesus deals with. In verse 13, Jesus goes on down by the sea, and he begins to teach. And there's a tax collector named Levi. You might know him as Matthew. That's right. So he wrote the, the first gospel in the New Testament, the gospel of Matthew. And this time right here, he's a tax collector. So they're, they're despised, right, in this area. They were Jewish men who collected taxes from Jews, so they were considered traitors. And and men like this would have sat next to a road, and they would have collected tolls for people passing by. They would have collected taxes on goods that were coming through, and they would have hiked the taxes up. The taxes would not have been fair. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like tolls, right? I don't. Do we have any tolls in California? Okay, some parts, yeah. I mean, Pennsylvania has a lot of tolls. I don't know about you, but don't go across Pennsylvania on the toll road, right? They're usually not even good roads anyways, but whatever. That's another story. But you think about it. This guy could move his toll wherever he wanted to. You couldn't even, like, predict. Is Matthew going to be or Levi going to be down there today? You know, who knows? But also, he would, uh, tax collectors were notorious for levying higher taxes than necessary. And they would inflate taxes on goods and safe passage and And so it wasn't fair, right? These guys were basically thieves. They were materialists. They loved money. And so verse 14 says that as Jesus passed by, he he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. Now, can you picture this? The Bible doesn't describe this. Picture this. Jesus walking down a road. It's obvious at some point Matthew had some interaction, maybe heard some teaching from Jesus. But he's walking down the road. Do you think he tried to, to tax Jesus? Can you imagine that? They're like, here's Jesus with this big crowd, and it's like, sweet, I'm going to get a lot of money from this one, right? And then Jesus walks up. What do you think that encounter was like? Like, do you think Jesus was like, what do you want? (laughs) How much do I owe? But then Jesus was able to pierce his eyes into the soul of Matthew. And then Matthew realizes, I am a greedy man. I am a sinner. And Matthew realizes that he was spiritually disabled by his sinful heart. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, follow me. Turn from your way of life, from your greedy, materialistic life, and follow me, Matthew. And then in verse 15, Matthew invites people to his table. And who are they? Tax collectors and sinners. More people who are in need of spiritual forgiveness 
In verse 15, it says, as he reclined at his table, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So many of these people there, Jesus extended forgiveness to. And so there's a paralytic, there's Levi, there's his friends, all have the same problem, right? They were all diagnosed by Jesus as having a congenital, systemic, incurable malady called sin, right? And they all were condemned to eternally be separated from God because of it. And what a great illustration Jesus uses here of a man who is unable to do anything to be healed. Unable to do any works to be healed. We all are completely spiritually paralyzed before God. In fact, it's even worse than that. The Bible actually says we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Okay, guys, click it. I don't know what's going on. It's okay. Um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, listen to this, God made alive together with him. How did he do it? Forgiving us of all of our trespasses, all of our sins. So there's a consultation with the divine physician and he diagnoses these men as having a problem of sin. And the solution then is what? What is the cure for their sin? It is forgiveness. It is forgiveness. Verse number five, what did Jesus say is his cure? Son, your sins are forgiven. What this man needed is he needed forgiveness from God. This word right here, if you were to study this word, forgiveness, very interesting word to study. In the Greek culture, this Greek word means to, meant to let go or to throw something away. The idea was that someone's holding on to something, and their, their, their grip is strong on it, and then they say, no more, I'm going to let this go. So, so picture that kind of, your phone just went off. Picture that kind of sin. <laughs> picture that kind of, picture that in this culture where they are holding on to something and someone tries to take it away and that person loses their grip on it. There you go. I think it was uh, someone wanting some money from you. No, just kidding. And sin has a grip on each one of our souls. We cannot escape the weight and the guilt of our sin and the punishment we deserve. And it grips our soul until we are forgiven and we're, our souls are released from that guilt. In fact, the same word is used in Matthew one thirty one. If you look up Matthew one thirty one, the Bible says, And he, that's Jesus, came and took her, that's Peter's mother-in-law, by the hand. And what does he do? He heals her. And the fever left her. It's actually the same root word, left, is the same word for forgive. He forgave her. The idea there is that Jesus, when Jesus healed her, her sickness was forgiven or sent away. It was no longer, no longer did that sickness have a hold on her body. And actually, this word is used in the Old Testament. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Septuagint, this word was used in Leviticus 16.10 talking about the scapegoat. And so back uh, when uh, in the, the times of uh, the Jewish people there, there was a day of atonement and the high priest would take a goat. He would put his hands on the head of that goat and he would send that goat out into the wilderness. And the idea there was 
he would confess the sins of Israel and the goat was going to take the blame and the, the sin of Israel and take it out in the wilderness and he was going to die. And that, that, that word used to send that goat away in the Greek was the word forgive. So you think about it this way. The idea is that, that sin has a, a grip on our souls and the, soul, the sin was, uh, was released and forgiven by God. And the amazing truth we find here about forgiveness is that Jesus' forgiveness doesn't just release our sin from the grip it has on our soul, but actually Jesus was the one who took that sin upon himself. In fact, if you read the rest of Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, if they want to put it on the screen up here, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made alive together. He has forgiven us. And how is he able to do that? Verse 14 by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, and how was he able to do that? He nailed it to the cross. You see, the reason that Jesus can offer you the forgiveness of sins, the promise that your sins can be forgiven, was because Jesus stood in your place when he died on that cross. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. How is he able to do this? In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, of Jesus' blood on the cross, there was no forgiveness of sins. So only God can forgive sins and he's able to do this because he takes the bloody death of Jesus and he applies it to us and our account. In fact, verse number six, these scribes are wondering, how is this guy able to forgive sins? Like only God can forgive sins. And they're correct. Jesus is God. Not only is he able to forgive sins, but he paid the price on the cross for that. And he proved his authority to these men that he had the authority to forgive sins. In verse number nine, he said, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise up, take up your bed and walk and look at verse 10. Why did he heal this man? So that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Stop right there and think about that. Jesus has the authority to promise you that all your sins are forgiven. And he demonstrated it here with these men and with this man. And he said in verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed. He was completely healed. The lady on the screen that they're going to put up here, her name is, is Sue. Sue was 18 years old and found herself pregnant. She didn't know what to do. She felt lost. And she just knew she wanted to all go away. So she went to a clinic and she received an abortion. Well, years begin to tick by and she had this guilt within her heart. She had the shame that she felt. She would have dreams and nightmares about the child that, that she killed. 10 years went by. She was working with a lady. This lady was a Christian. This lady showed her love and compassion when Sue opened up about her life, what was going on, this lady shared the gospel with her and shared with her that there was a person, or there was a God who loved her and Jesus could forgive her. And Sue came to Christ and found forgiveness in Christ. 
But Sue, even after that, about a year later, she said her conscience began to come back and accuse her. She says this, I know that God can forgive me, but, but can he forgive me for that? Like that was really bad. So she began to intensely study the Bible. And she found the healing that her soul needed. And that is within the promise that Jesus truly had forgiven her. In fact, she even wrote a Bible study. If you ever uh, want to study the Bible with a person who has gone through something very difficult, something like that with abortion, this is a great uh, book that she, you can go through with someone. And she found that forgiveness is free and it's complete. In fact, I just want to go through a couple of points here. What is forgiveness? Just thinking about this man right here that Jesus forgave. First of all, forgiveness is immediate. When Jesus said your sins are forgiven, he wasn't saying someday in the future, like wait to the end of your life and hopefully you'll find out your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness was instantaneous, right? When he said to this man, take up your bed and walk, what was he saying? Over a period of time, your feet will, you'll start gaining feeling in your feet, right? No. Oh, you will hopefully, uh, you know, be able to get some healing in a couple of days. No, you, he was instantly healed. He was instantly forgiven. When Jesus forgives, his pardon is immediate. And also, forgiveness is an act of God. In verse 5, when he uses the word forgiven, it's actually in the passive. It means it was something that Jesus did to this gentleman. It was an act of God upon him. Jesus granted him forgiveness. And also, forgiveness cannot be earned. Did this man do anything to earn his healing? No, right? I mean, can you imagine if this man was healed and he got up and he was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. And I also did some pretty awesome things to be healed, you know? I did, I had a part in this. Like everyone would be like, nope, you were paralyzed, <laughs> like, right? And, and can you imagine if Jesus, or afterwards he said, you know, Jesus, thank you for healing me. I'm going to go repair this roof so that my forgiveness can be complete. Right? I mean, I really damaged this roof here. <laughs> like, it was my fault because I'm the paralyzed one, and now I'm healed. Right? Did Jesus say, you know, in order for you to have true forgiveness, uh, I forgive you and you need to repair this roof. Did he say that? No. What Jesus said was, you are forgiven. And it was done. There was nothing he had to do. You cannot add to the work of your forgiveness to be complete. Like Jesus did the work. He lived the life. He died on the cross. He rose again. When Jesus forgives you, it's not something you can earn. It's something that he gives to you. He gifts it to you. Forgiveness is also comprehensive. When Jesus healed, he was completely healed, right? His legs, his arms, his entire body. When Jesus forgave him, he forgave him of his sins, past and present and in the future. Romans 8, 1. There's therefore no condemnation ever to those who are in Christ. So the cure from the divine physician is forgiveness. And the call of the divine physician is to repent and believe. Sometimes it's going to be hard to understand. How does this all work? Like, how does it all work that Jesus truly, completely forgives us? Well, I was hoping Norm would be here this morning because I was going to give him a hard time. Because I thought what I would do is I would give him a little illustration here. And I thought, you know, I'm going I'm to pretend like this book right here is the account of all the sins in your life. 
So I was trying to decide which one I'd use for Norm, but I decided to get the, use this one right here. But imagine that this book represents your life and everything you've ever done. This is your birth certificate. And imagine this is your death certificate. So everything you've ever done, every sin you've ever committed against God is in here, past, present, and future. And the reality is our sin weighs upon us, doesn't it? And it would say, this is your soul, this is your person, your, your sin weighs upon you. And a lot of people say, you know, they feel guilty about what they've done, so they, they try to turn over a new leaf, right? And where is their sin? It's still there. And some people say, well, I'm going to turn my life around. And where is their sin? It's still there. And what every person truly needs, they need forgiveness. They need the sin removed from their account. And what Jesus promises is that when we believe and repent, when we repent and believe, when we say, Lord, I don't want to, I confess this is true. This is who I am. I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to follow Jesus Christ. We confess our sin to him. The Bible says that he forgives us. I think the hard thing is, is that how many have you ever viewed everything you've ever done? Like who, how many have ever viewed all the sins you've ever committed? Like you can't, you can't see it, right? I mean, it's, it's like if I asked you to close your eyes and I told you, I'm going to move this book from here over here. How would you know I did it? If I told you, I promise you, I'm going to do it. How do you know it's true? You have to believe me, right? And the idea of belief isn't some kind of mythical, like, or feely, you know, fuzzy feeling that I have. Oh, I believe in Jesus. It's actually belief that Jesus, everything I've ever done, you've put upon yourself when you died on the cross or the father put upon you, the wrath of God was truly poured out upon you, all my sin. And when I confessed my sin to you and I believed in Jesus, Jesus takes my sin. And that's why the Bible says that, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so how does a person have be cured from their sin, they have forgiveness. And Jesus calls us to repentance and belief. Remember, what did Jesus preach when he was preaching to these people? He went all around Galilee, Matthew 1.15, preaching what? Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. In fact, John the Baptist, what did he preach? He preached a repentance, right? For the baptism, the baptism of repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And the idea there is that Jesus continued that message, repent and follow me. When he went to Matthew, Matthew left his sinful way of life and he believed in Jesus. When he was with all these men at that table, Jesus was with those men. They were sinners and tax collectors described by their spiritual sickness. Jesus called them to follow him. So leave your sinful life and follow me. And the sad reality is, as you look at this passage, that there are a group of people, particularly the scribes, who never found that forgiveness. Why not? They looked at Jesus as just an ordinary person. They looked at Jesus as a heretic, and they didn't see their need to repent. They didn't see their need to confess their sin. They didn't see their need to believe the word of Jesus. And so if you look at verse 17, what does verse 17 say? Jesus says, those who are well, in other words, those who don't see their sin, those who don't see that they are spiritually sick, they don't need me, the divine physician. But those who are sick, those who say, I'm a sinner, I'm in need of a savior. I came not to call the righteous. 
I came to call sinners. And Luke adds on there to repentance. Maybe you're a person in here and you say, you know what, Ben, I've never thought of it that way before. And maybe you were even living a religious atheistic life where God's a part of your life, but you're not truly coming to him in repentance and faith. I invite you to come to Jesus today. Maybe you're in here and you are Christian. You say, I know, Ben, that I am living a life of repentance and faith, but I really struggle because there's some things I did in my life and I've done in my life. I just, I don't know. Can God really forgive me? I want to let you know, based upon the authority of Jesus and authority of his word, that he promises you complete forgiveness. And you in here must believe his promise. His promise. Son, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will take the truth of the word. The truth that I firmly believe Jesus preached. And help us not just to know it. Help us to hold on to it by faith. Jesus, I truly believe everything that I've ever done. And anyone who's a believer in here, anything they've ever done because of you is forgiven. So thankful for that. We have the hope of eternity with you.